Um, well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. First, quite late to say that, doesn't it? The 7th of January. But um, there you go. Uh, especially a warm welcome to you if you're new or visiting us this morning. Um, usually, as a church, what we do in January is we spend a few weeks looking at our church's vision and values. Um, and we are going to do that again uh, the, these first three weeks of January. But we're going to do that in a slightly different way. Rather than taking one of them each week, we're going to sort of look at all of them collectively through the lens of what Ray Ortland calls gospel doctrine and gospel culture. What I'm going to do today is just introduce those categories from that passage in Galatians 2. We'll think a bit about them together, and then the next two Sundays we'll, we'll press on in thinking about them. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you that your mercies are new that your compassions never fail. You are so faithful and we praise you for it. And so, Lord, um, as we, we gather this morning, we seek you. Please would you speak to us. Please would our hearts experience afresh your amazing grace. And we pray that that grace would both be felt personally but also collectively as a church as we are here together and we pray Lord please help us to cling to the truth about Jesus but we pray that truth would bear fruit in our lives that would be tasted and seen for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. In a moment I'm going to show you a picture and when I do I want you to think about these two questions. What is the doctrine and what is the culture? What is the doctrine, i.e. what's the formally stated belief that's on display in the picture? And what is the culture, i.e. the actual vibe or feel of that community on the ground? What's the doctrine, what's the culture? They're the two questions I want you to think about. But before I show you the picture, I just need to warn you that the picture I'm going to show you is quite offensive. Um, if you find this particularly unsettling, I, please forgive me, I'm sorry, though I hope actually we all will in some way. So, let me show you the picture. What's the doctrine? What's the culture? This is the interactive part, so you can shout out, what's, what, what's the doctrine? Jesus saves Right, it's the top and the center of the picture. It's the glorious gospel doctrine, isn't it? Jesus saves, to which we want to say our loudest, amen. That's the best and most, it's just the best news in the whole world. That's why we're here, isn't it? We're here because Jesus saves. That is the gospel in a nutshell. But what's the culture? And and. It's harder to discern the culture when you're looking at pictures, isn't it? Culture is not seen, it is felt. But the culture of that group in that picture is very well known, isn't it? It is a violent white supremacist hate group. And therefore, we all instinctively know that there is something deeply wrong with this picture even though the right doctrine is on display. Actually, what's wrong is worse because the doctrine is right. Because the, 
the culture is denying in reality what the doctrine is saying in theory. In that picture, the gospel is being destroyed even as it is being proclaimed. Whatever the sign says, the group of people in that picture, they are not faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, I realize that's an extreme example, but it reveals something really important. What it reveals is that faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to Jesus, does not only require doctrinal fidelity, but also relational beauty. In other words, we need both doctrine and culture together. The doctrine of grace and the culture of grace. Because it's possible to deny the gospel in both of those ways. It's possible to deny the, doctor, the, the gospel doctrinally, right? At the level of belief by what we say is true or by what we deny to be true. That's usually quite obvious, though it's not always. But it's also possible to deny the gospel practically at the level of culture by what we do or embody or fail to do and embody. That's usually much more subtle. Clearly, that culture is not in step with the gospel. In fact, it is a contradiction of the gospel that it claims to confess. And that is precisely the same problem that we encounter in Galatians 2 with the Apostle Peter. Which is quite shocking, isn't it? So let's get rid of that. Let's look at Galatians 2. When you think about these, these two categories, gospel doctrine and gospel culture in Galatians 2. Um, so please, if you close your Bible, please open it again. And, and just to say, if you don't own a Bible, there's one around, there's lots of them around the church. Please take it home. It'll be our New Year's gift to you, a belated Christmas gift. And in, in this scene in Galatians 2, I, I cannot think of a more tense and dramatic moment than this scene in Antioch. One apostle publicly opposing another to his face. I mean, can you imagine the the drama of seeing that? But what is it that Peter has got so wrong that it demands this very public rebuke from Paul? Verse 12 is the answer. Before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. To which we might ask, is that all? Is that all? I mean, all Peter's done is change his eating habits. He used to eat with the Gentiles, then he decided not to anymore. I mean, is that really such a big deal? Yes, it is. Because in the first century, even as it is today, eating a meal with someone is a sign of acceptance, of fellowship. As a young Jewish man, Peter would have been taught that Gentiles, which is just anyone who is not a Jew, were unclean, unwashed, common muck. Because the Gentiles did not observe kosher food laws. They did stuff like eating ham sandwiches without washing their hands first. (gasps) If you're a Jew. So 
Jews would never eat with Gentiles or even associate with them if they could avoid it because they feared being contaminated by their uncleanness. But then Peter met Jesus and he eventually realized that even Gentiles can be made clean, kosher, acceptable before God, not through keeping kosher food laws, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says that when the Gentiles heard the gospel from him, God showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them before he purified, he cleansed them. How? Not by food laws, but by faith. Peter knows and believes that Gentile Christians don't have to keep food laws in order to be acceptable to God. Peter knows that. And so he would happily eat with them as equals. Because Peter knows it's Jesus who makes us kosher, not food laws. Peter knows the same grace of Jesus that has embraced him has embraced these Gentile believers too. That they've been washed in the same blood of Christ crucified, that they share the same baptism, the same Holy Spirit, and so they joyfully sat at the Lord's table together. But then he separated. And when he separated from a table, you know, you imagine it in Antioch at their church meal, there's a six tables and You know, they're all mixed, Jews and Gentiles eating. But Peter, he leaves the mixed table and he makes sure that he's on a table with only other Jewish Christians. And by doing that, what he communicates, though he would never say it, but what he communicates is that it is not enough for these Gentile Christians simply to believe the gospel they also need to adopt kosher food laws in order to be good enough for God and to be good enough for Peter. That's what he's communicating. What a violation of justification by faith. What an insult to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And what an arrogant humiliation of those believers. And Paul alone sees how serious this is. He sees the problem is not just bad manners on Peter's part, but a much deeper failure. Verse verse 14, that Peter's conduct is not in line with the truth of the gospel. His conduct is a departure from the gospel, not at the level of doctrine. He hasn't changed what he believes. But nevertheless, it is a departure from the gospel at the level of culture. Paul makes that clear in in verse 21, that it is that serious. And all of verses 15 to 21 is Paul's speech to Peter. And it finishes in verse 21. And, And Paul finishes by saying this to Peter. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And when Paul says to Peter that 
I don't set aside the grace of God. He's implying that Peter is setting aside the grace of God. But again, it was not Peter's teaching that was setting aside the grace of God, but his behavior. And he didn't even realize it. Meanwhile, how, how is his conduct setting aside God's grace? Well, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, it shows that there is no other way for us to be right with God, to be justified. That's what that word means. No amount of law-keeping and rule-keeping can ever get you right with God. If it could, then God would not have sent Jesus to die on the cross. Because you just, you just tell him to work harder. The very reason that Jesus came and died on the cross tells you, you can't do it through your own efforts. And therefore, any attempt to try and top up Jesus' work on the cross with our work is effectively to say that Jesus died for nothing. But here, whatever his official doctrine, Peter's actions are saying that there are two levels of justification, two tiers of acceptance before God. Peter is communicating that there is a full first-class justification for people who have Jesus, plus some a top-up of food laws. And there is a second-class kind of justification for people who only have Jesus, like those Gentiles. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. When it comes to justification, there is no hierarchy. There are no degrees, no grades, no levels. Jesus alone is our perfect rightness before God. And so everyone who has Jesus is perfectly right with God, perfectly acceptable to God. There aren't two levels. You can't top up what Jesus gives you with food laws. But, and so Peter's conduct, it is a, a living denial of the gospel, not in words, but in actions. What we're seeing here is a failure of gospel culture. But this cultural compromise is just as serious as a doctrinal compromise. It threatens to set aside God's grace and make Jesus' cross nothing. And all of that driven not by ignorance, but by fear. See, Peter knew better, but he was afraid. That's why Paul calls it hypocrisy. Because Peter hadn't changed his convictions, his thinking hadn't changed only his living. He still believed the gospel, still believed justification by faith, he'd still happily put his signature at the bottom of the statement of faith. And it's contagious as well, isn't it? Verse 13, the other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray, even encouraging generous Barnabas is dragged down because hypocrisy is contagious you see someone that you respect acting in a way that's not in line with the gospel and you assume 
oh, it must be okay then. It must not be a big deal. But it is a big deal. Which is why Paul confronts his fellow apostle to his face. And we can be glad he did because the truth of the gospel was at stake. But I want you to notice that the way that Paul deals with Peter's cultural failure, his behavioral failure, is not by addressing the behavior. You see that? In verse 16, he doesn't say, you're behaving wrongly. He says, you're not believing rightly. He applies more doctrine. He just goes back to justification by faith. Verse 16, he says to Peter, we know that a person is not justified, that is made right with God, made acceptable to God. We know that a person is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, so we've done that too. We too have put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we can be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By the way, if you're wondering, did Paul just say the same thing three times in slightly different ways? Yes, he did. He says it theologically, sort of we know, and it is we, i.e. you and I, you, we, you know this too, Peter, not just me. Then he says it personally. Therefore, we have put our faith in Jesus. And then he expresses it absolutely, because by the works of the Lord, no one will be just, justified. To which we want to say, Hallelujah. That's the gospel doctrine that we believe and rejoice in and cling to and stand on. It's the answer to the most important question you could ever ask. How can I be right with God? And the answer is very clear in verse 16, isn't it? Not through the works of the law. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus alone is enough for our acceptance, our righteousness, our justification before God, our approval before God. Our acceptance before God is a sheer gift of grace to people who do not deserve it, apart from all our working, all our earning, all our meriting. God welcomes us sinners, not because of anything we contribute, but because we receive Christ with empty hands of faith. Martin Luther, in his preface to the commentary on Galatians, he said this, in this, we work nothing, we render nothing unto God, we only receive. That's justification by faith. Work nothing, offer nothing to God. You just receive. It's good news, isn't it? Because it means you don't have to bring anything to God except your emptiness. You bring nothing to God except the fact that you need him. And God will give you everything that you lack. He will completely cover all of your sin. He will give you his perfect righteousness for free all of it paid for by Jesus' death on the cross 
Now, this is not a perfect illustration, but it shows to something, some, serves to show something of how radical this is in our daily lives. Justification by faith is a bit like being given a debit card. And that debit card is linked to an account that is maxed out, filled to the brim with the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of your debts you can charge to this account and it will never run out. It will never diminish. And to get this card, you don't need to have a good credit score. In fact, it's only available to people who have a bad credit score. Your part is simply to receive it. And, and if you have this debit card, what it means is that when you sin, you don't have to hide it, you don't have to deny it, you don't have to bury it. You confess it freely. You bring your sin to the till, you tap your card, and then you move on rejoicing because your sin is paid for in full by Jesus. God's grace really is like that. It is extravagant and free and lavish and it's for you. And what this means is that no one is so bad that they cannot be made right with God because it's free. And it means also that no one is so good that they don't need to be made right with God. It must be received because your works cannot cut it. It also means, though, that if you don't believe this good news, if you don't receive Jesus, it is either because you proudly believe that you are too good to be judged or you proudly believe that you're too bad to be saved. Either way, the problem is your pride. And the gospel always challenges our pride. As human beings, we like to feel that our efforts make a difference. We like to feel that we can contribute something. Self-justification is our deepest impulse. Legalism is our mother tongue. That's why we're always looking for ways to pay people back when they do things for us. Whenever my grandma takes my family out for for lunch, if we're down to to see them, my brother-in-law always insists on splitting the bill. But when it comes to justification, Jesus will not split the bill with you. You either ask Jesus to pay everything, to totally deal with your sin and make you right with God by his merits alone, or you can try and fail to do it yourself. He will not meet you in the middle. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. We do nothing. Jesus does everything. Let me summarize what we've seen so far. We need that gospel doctrine. Our church would be nothing without it. And there are so-called churches that deny the gospel at the level of that doctrine. If you ask them, do you really believe that? They wouldn't. That's not okay. So we need gospel doctrine, but if that's all that we have, we can still lose our way, just as the Apostle Peter did. Peter had right gospel doctrine. 
He still believed justification by faith. And yet, his conduct threatened to set aside the grace of God and the cross of Jesus. Because faithfulness to the gospel, it requires more than just doctrinal assent. It also requires that we follow through on its relational implications, that our conduct is in line with the truth of the gospel. Faithfulness requires both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Now in Galatians 2, we get the negative example. We see what happens when gospel culture goes wrong. But what ought it to have looked like? Well, if the doctrine is justification by faith, that our sins are forgiven, that we're made right with God by faith alone, that must create a culture of humility, right? Because it's got nothing to do with our own goodness. A church marked by arrogance is a denial of the gospel, even if they say they believe justification by faith. And it also ought to create a culture of honesty where we don't pretend that we're brilliant people who get it right all the time. A a church of, of people who blame shift and sin deny and repentance refuse is a denial of justification by faith because it's only bad people who need Jesus. If the doctrine is justification by faith, God's gracious acceptance of all kinds of bad people in Christ that must create a church culture of gracious acceptance of all kinds of bad people in Christ's church. Because if God is willing to accept someone, how could the church not? And so justification by faith, it creates a community where Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, educated and uneducated, black and white, mature and immature, scouse and southerner, young and old, where we eat together as a sign of our acceptance of one another, fellowship together at one another's tables and at the Lord's table as equals, as one in Christ Jesus. Now, that is not easy, but it is necessary. I'm just going to think for a few minutes about why it's necessary. I guess that that most of us, we quite quickly understand that doctrinal fidelity is essential. Most of us in our church probably get that quite easily. But according to Paul, what we're seeing is that relational beauty is equally essential Now, most of us would tend towards one or the other. Um, Some of us, we resonate with doctrine. We love accurate theology and confessions of faith. Others of us, we resonate with culture. We like vibe and atmosphere. We like the intangible things that make a community what it is. Both together are very good. Each by itself alone is a disaster. If you have gospel doctrine without the culture, what you have is ugly hypocrisy. People who believe all the right things, but they don't show it. 
On the other hand, if you have the culture or people attempting to have the culture of gracious acceptance and welcome and all those kinds of things, without the doctrine, what you have is extremely fragile because it cannot sustain the love that it needs because only the doctrine can create that. But where both come together, where where there is gospel doctrine and gospel culture, there the power of God is released and experienced and displayed. Francis Schaeffer said, you cannot explain the explosive dynamic of the early church apart from this fact, that they practiced two things simultaneously orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the church and the world. He goes on, by the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. In other words, the beauty of human relationships is not an optional add-on for an otherwise complete biblical church. Gospel culture is as essential to our witness as having the right doctrines. Now, just before we finish off, I just want to take a moment to encourage you in our church that I, I see this in the life of our church um, it's striking to me when I get to do membership interviews with people that one of the most common things I've heard from people who've joined our church in the last couple of years is that they have felt welcomed and included. I'm so encouraged by that. I thank God for that. That is because of you. It's because of what you guys do on Sundays and throughout the week, welcoming and inviting people into your homes and befriending people. I hope if you're new or new-ish to our church, that you experience that too. So let me just just say, as as we sort of kick off this series, we're not doing this series because I want to begin the year by rebuking you. Quite the opposite. I want to begin the year by encouraging you. Like Paul says to the, the, the the Thessalonians, you're doing this and I want you to do it more and more. See this in our church. But here's the thing. When it comes to gospel culture, you cannot rest on your laurels. If even the great apostle Peter, even Peter could fall away from gospel culture into hypocrisy, then you and I can too. As quickly as that. And because culture is intangible, because we can very quickly become like fish who don't even notice the water they're swimming in, it is possible that our church culture denies our doctrine in ways that we don't even realize. We just don't see it anymore. So we have to be intentional. (coughs) We have to be intentional about asking, how fully does our culture reflect our doctrine? Is our conduct in line with the truth of the gospel? Because as a church, I know this, we, 
We long, don't we? We long for the beauty of Christ to be seen here. We long for the beauty of Christ to shape and flavor every aspect of our church so that his glory is seen and experienced and felt. Which only leaves us with one last question very quickly. How do we do this? And then... Schaeffer's words in, in his quote there, his first few words, by the grace of God, are really important. Because what that shows us is that in order to live this out, we need power from beyond ourselves. Because it's hard to do this. It's hard to hold on to gospel doctrine because self-justification is our deepest impulse. Legalism is our mother tongue. We lose sight of the gospel so quickly. Our hearts still feel like we're in a precarious position before God. We fear his disapproval, so we fall back into scurrying about to making up our own righteousness. So easy to fall into actually believing that day to day. I have to pay attention to that as a church. But even if we are trusting Christ for our approval before God... It's hard to sustain a gospel culture, partly because it's intangible, but partly because, sadly, hypocrisy comes really naturally to us. Hypocrisy comes really naturally to us. It is so easy to say one thing and to live another. We all know that. So this is not easy, but it is possible. It's possible by living in verse 20. Verse 20 is a kind of, is basically what it looks like, I think, to believe the gospel every single day of your life for real. Paul says there, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is how you sustain gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Not by the strength of our own will. We will not do gospel culture this year by making a New Year's resolution about it. It only comes through the strength of his endless love for us. Moment by moment, we look to Jesus to the one who loved me, even in all my hypocrisy, who still loves me, who gave himself for me, even though still I attempt to justify myself. We look to the one who loved me and gave himself for me because the gospel is not just the gateway to life with Jesus. You don't just do this once and say, I believe in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. This is every day. It's the permanent pathway of life with Jesus. We never graduate from this. We never graduate from justification by faith. Our lives are a continual process of realigning ourselves with that as we remember it every day. Because it's, it's when we stop living with that personal reality of Jesus, if he is nothing more than an orthodox hypothesis, a biblical abstraction, 
if Jesus is no longer personally real to you, if his love is no longer personally wondrous to you, If we drift from verse 20 as a daily reality, everything else breaks down. What I'm saying is, we cannot do this without Jesus. We need his love, not just as a theory, but as a reality. We need his justifying grace not just as a theory, but as a reality. We need his empowering spirit, not just as a theory, but as reality. And we have it. Because his grace and his love and his spirit are real for us today. And so we can throw ourselves into the arms of Jesus because he really does love you. We can throw ourselves into the arms of Jesus because he gave himself for you. We can confess our hypocrisy, the fails, the the, the ways that we fail to live out gospel culture because we know he will meet us with his mercy and grace. And then our church can be an imperfect Imperfect, but real and visible proof of Jesus' truth and grace in this world. Let's pray. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Father, we are sorry, I am sorry, that my life so often is not in step with the truth of the gospel. That I deny the gospel in the way that I live. that in doing so, we threaten to set aside your grace as if Christ died for no purpose. Forgive us for that, Lord. And we pray that this day, just today, help us today to live in that daily reality of knowing Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you that our sin is paid for that our righteousness is perfect in Christ and that we have your approval. Help us to live there and to live that out. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song uh, now before the throne of God above. It's a song that celebrates our justification by faith and our confidence before God. So let's stand and sing together.